Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. This week, we're continuing our conversation with Craig Gaines, author of Lost California Treasure. If you missed last week's episode, make sure to check it out. And if you have a moment, be sure to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other listeners and history buffs find the show, and we sure are grateful. For now, let's jump back in. Craig, welcome back to Crime Capsule. So glad you could join us. Thanks for having me here. So we're going to look at some cases here uh, in your encyclopedia of lost California treasure. Um, but first, before we dive into those, I just had to ask you really quick. I was charmed, Craig. I was absolutely charmed by the names that, that ran through this book of the lost sites. I mean, you have some fantastic monikers for... Uh, digs and you know, veins and loads and so forth. You have the Jackass Hill Mine. You have the Lost Volcano Lake of Gold. You have Three Finger Jack's Loot. I mean, did you feel like you were kind of reading an adventure novel, you know, from the early 1940s this, this whole time as you were researching? Well, that's where the early 1940s got the names, you know, because everything was colorful out in the, the West. And people had unique names. You know, again, Three Finger Jack is a rattlesnake dick or, you yeah. know, just all sorts of uh, nicknames. And nicknames, I think, were more common back then than we encounter today. But everybody had a nickname. And a lot of times it wasn't didn't have anything to do with their uh, shortening a, a name or something. Again, you know, they're a rural population. So they're out in the desert or in the mountains and lots of bears and and critters out there. So you end up with really, you know, Western names, I think. Oh, yeah. There's one that was something like, uh, you know, Burroughs Run, which basically tells you that that particular guy uh, probably didn't make it out of that part of the valley yeah. <laughs> with, his, with, the, with the transportation that he came in with. <laughs> right. It's pretty common to have your livestock run off, you know, in the middle of the night. And, and again, there are several of those tales about finding the lost, tra- finding gold while hunting down the burrow and then you're lost. You can't find, right? because you're trying to, you know, you're going up some arroyo that uh, you didn't plan to go up and it's, you're in a hurry. You're not thinking about getting back. You're hunting your, your transport in and out of that area. Your campfire's gone out, so you don't have a smoke trail to follow. And, you know, you're just up right. a creek. You're just up a you creek. Are. You are. So let's take a look at uh, Don Tiburcio Tapia, uh, who is this really interesting fellow that we meet, uh, born in 1789. He was a Spanish soldier and local politician, you write. And I wanted to look at the lost treasure of Don Tapia because... It's interesting, you write extensively in your book about the shifting political winds of California in the early to mid 
1800s. Of course, uh, listeners will remember that California only became a state, a United States uh, formal state in 1850, uh, prior to which it had been in Spanish under Spanish control. Um, but there was, as part of Don Tapia's story, uh, what listeners may not always remember is that there was actually a revolt uh, of the Californians against their imperial overlords, right? And I was wondering if you would just take us back to uh, Don Tapia's moment and tell us what happened to him and what uh, happened to his treasure. Originally, California was part of the Spanish territories, and Mexico had a revolt, had a series of revolts in late, uh, what, about 1818, 1820, and eventually broke away from Spain. But in that period, California was kind of by itself because the Spanish couldn't get there with cargo, and the rebels, which which formed Mexico, were too busy fighting the Spanish down in Mexico to go there. So they were kind of left on, on their own. And a lot of the people that had land grants in California had been soldiers early on, like Don Tapia. And there weren't a lot of people, but those that had served in the military got involved in politics and they ran the place. And Don Tapia was one of those people that kind of ran the place. And there were several revolts. And if, if you've ever seen, you know, the... Zorro and the story of Zorro, it's kind of in that time period. You know, not the last movies. The last movies are uh, different, but the old Disney movies kind of depicted the conflict uh, between Spain and its colony and Mexico. Uh, And Don Tapia, again, he was one of those guys, kind of like John Sutter, who was Swiss, that got a land grant in Sacramento. And there's a whole bunch of these really smart, powerful uh, characters that accumulated wealth. Again, they had, California had Indians, and a lot of times they manipulated the Indian population, did did a lot of the work. And so they would have big estates uh, Don Tapia had a big estate in the L.A. area. And he was a smuggler, too, wasn't he? I mean, his his business was not just in sort of mercantilism, but, I mean, he was trafficking goods that were um, pres- proscribed by law at the time, yeah. Right, and Spain had cut off trade from any other country. You had to be on Spanish vessels. They were a colony, you know, kind of like, if you, you had to buy their goods, and their goods were hard to get and very expensive, but you would have American or British ships up and down the coast, and they would bring in goods and smuggle them in, on the coast. And so you have smugglers' coves up and down uh, the coast of California from those days. And he, he was involved in... in getting some of these goods to sell. And again, the police force and the military are all tied into him. 
and and these other locals. So uh, they pretty much did what they wanted, especially during the Mexican Revolt period. So these Americans show up. Right. And, you know, John Fremont, you have Kit Carson was a scout. Uh, Bear Bear Flag Republic uh, was formed from these immigrants. And it's kind of like what happened in Texas during the Texas Revolution. You, you, You have a group of immigrants come in. They're a different society. They they're wealthier than the local folks. And the resources were underexploited, meaning they came in and they, they thought, ah, I can irrigate this land and it'll be great for raising crops. And that's what they did. But when they did that, they upset the political climate. And so the original uh, Californios, Californios uh, there was conflict between the people who were there first and these other people that came in and took over. And Don Topia was like that. And since he was wealthy, he didn't want his money taken. He thought the Americans would come in and confiscate it. So he hid his wealth, he and his family. And again, there, in this time period, there are several stories about people hiding the family uh, treasure because they didn't really have banks like we do today. It was pretty much the rich folks had a treasure chest and it was hidden somewhere in the house or maybe out in the the barn or, you know, someplace they could get their cash. But a lot of things were done by trade because there wasn't a lot of cash. But if you were trading with people like folks on ships, they didn't really want cows. They wanted gold or silver. And so you had to have some cash on hand in order to buy that stuff. So Don Tapia, I mean, I love the stories about his particular treasure because it they're just so dramatic. I mean, one story has him hiding it in these massive steel caskets, which are then sort of lowered down, you know, into a, uh, a, a cavity. Another tail has him burying it at the at the site of what was it uh, large rocks that formed a cross under a valley uh, you know then there's some other treasure chest which is also part of the the tail on his ranch and you just think you know very likely maybe none of these things actually happened but the stories are too good to let go <laughs> they are you know and you, you, and today you have Malibu which was part of his land grant or next to it, Rancho Malibu. And and you think, you know, all this wealth that's in Malibu now, it is all preceded by these ancient dons uh, who who had their haciendas and and large ranches in the area. Everything's changed. And and that still gets to, you know, you never know with a construction site or something it the bulldozer may turn up something long buried. And so that's why a lot of people keep their eyes open when there's construction in some of these old areas, because you never know what they might turn up. You never know. You never know. So what, what happened to Don Tapia's treasure? There's this kind of interesting sidebar to the to the end of his story, which uh, I thought was kind of like, hey, somebody finally 
got a lucky break after all of the bad maps and murdering from last week. You know, someone finally catches a break here. Right. You know, because he died and he gave instructions on when he, on his deathbed about, okay, dad, where's the money? You know, because yeah. you want a limited number of people know where your stashes are because otherwise somebody uh, is going to kidnap one of them and force them to tell you, okay, where's the family wealth? So a lot of times they just had one or two people know where the treasure actually was. So that's not unusual to me. And the type of people that have wealth generally don't share knowledge because if they share knowledge, they'd be afraid somebody'd knock them off and the son or the son-in-law would oh, take yeah. over. I mean, it's human nature. I hate to, I keep saying that, but we we still see some of the same problems today uh, in dealing with people. But in 1877, a couple of uh, workers were digging and in this arroyo near Monterey Park, and they found a chest. You know, they stumbled into something. And and again, there's a lot of stories of people uh, digging post holes for fencing and uncovering somebody's cache of old coins. And, you know, this, you know, I love these stories because they're true. They found something and it, now the question is, did they find all of the Don's treasure or was it somebody else's treasure? And when you examine stories about how much was buried, a lot of times it's exaggerated or it's converted into dollars today but several thousand dollars in silver back then was a lot of money somebody that has a lot of money i think typically wants it in several different places if oh you know, yeah I've absolutely done a lot of research on various treasure stories and and usually there's a couple of caches around and these guys found it and you know I don't know if they lived happily ever after, but I don't think they were out digging ditches anymore <laughs> after they found it. Probably safe to say that uh, their fortunes their fortunes changed as a result of that. Well, nice to see somebody actually get a little windfall there, you know, in the middle of all of these stories of, you know, the guy dies, the map doesn't work, you know, the cabin burns, etc. So I want to ask you about, uh, there's this kind of interesting element um, in your in your account, where you describe quite a lot of naval traffic uh, in California in this period, naval traffic that involves uh, either the coastline directly or rivers and lakes that don't exist anymore, that have been uh, either diverted or drained or you know what have you. And you know, I think for a lot of us today who uh, you know know and love California for the state that it has become, I think it's a little hard sometimes to remember or to imagine what the actual landform was like 200 years ago when all of this was, you know, kind of really at its peak. It was just a very different terrain, and that actually led to some opportunities for exploration, for navigation, and for uh, discovery that just wouldn't be there now. So two cases uh, that I want to ask you about kind of... uh, back to back. I mean, number one, 
it's always good to see Francis Drake show up in any book that you read, right? And I was just delight, delighted to see Sir Francis Drake appear on the west coast of California, you know, and uh, with with his massive hall of, of pirate treasure. You know, of course, he wasn't a pirate. He was a gentleman, right? He was knighted by the queen. But um, good to see him because he is circumnavigating this part of the coastline in uh, very productive ways. And then you also have another ship, which is uh, a more intriguing, I think, topographically. You have what's called the Lost Ship of the Desert, where there was a drained Sea, and it was. Of course, we know that naval traffic was much more efficient than overland traffic. Sure, we got that, no problem. But the the pressures, the specific pressures uh, of naval traffic, and the perils that uh, boats carrying treasure, cargo, gold, and silver, and bullion, and so forth. I mean, those were very real, and it was very dangerous uh, activity if you were not prepared or didn't know the coastline. So, tell us just a little bit about these. Uh, these shipborne routes for treasure and whether all of them ended so well. Spoiler alert, they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Sir Francis Drake, again, he went. He was, I think, the first pirate or privateer to go up the, the west coast of South America. And he had the good luck to run into a galleon that was just full of treasure that they were moving to another location in South America so it could be transported back to Spain. And they had so much gold and silver that they put on their little ship that they were afraid it was going to sink. The, and again, they'd been out on the ocean for a long time, and they still were going to be out on the ocean for a long time to get back home. But they, he ended up going north to California and he put in and they had to repair their ship. And, and so they unloaded the cargo of gold and silver. And after they scraped all the barnacles off the keel and did whatever repairs, they sailed off to England, but they went around the globe to get back to England. So there are several stories about, the crew not thinking all that weight was going to get them back to England and that they cashed some of their treasure in the Monterey area or some of those areas up uh, north of San Francisco where they had put in. So these are, these are really fascinating stories because you can imagine, you know, you got a little ship and part of your crew's already died, and you've still got a long way to go to home, go home. Uh, and it's all Spanish territory. So whatever they buried, they didn't go back for because it was Spanish territory. They would have been putting their lives at risk yet yet again. Do we know, just out of curiosity, whether when they seized the Spanish galleon from which they obtained all of, all of this treasure, uh, did they sink? that galleon? Did they scuttle it? Do you have any idea what they actually did with that vessel? Normally they wouldn't sink it because it had a lot of people on board and they didn't want to kill everybody, you know, and you had to have enough small boats to transport the people off the ship. And so I think they left the ship, but I could be wrong. (laughs) I don't remember off the top of my head. 
you know, but typically, you know, they were out after the gold and they needed the people on the ship to help them move the gold and silver onto their ship. So, and, and then normally they would turn them loose. You know, they might cut the, the mast so they couldn't sail very good or damage the ship that it would take them a while to uh, repair the ship so they could make it to shore or wait for some other ship to come by and save them. Yeah, Drake wanted a clean getaway there. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, and and plus he was a private privateer, and I think the queen had invested in the expedition. So you didn't want a too black of a name when you got back home. So he he didn't, he needed some sort of cover. So uh, I don't think he murdered or, or killed a lot of people in his exploits. So his treasure is potentially somewhere around the Monterey area or portions of it. And we have never conclusively determined whether this is the case, but some reports suggest there might be something out there still to be discovered. Now, around this same time, you did have this other Spanish ship along the Salton Sea, uh, which kind of doesn't really exist anymore, although recent rains have kind of... Uh, there was an article uh, in the New York Times recently about how the recent rains had almost kind of revived the Salton Sea. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to ask you about it is because the, the, the landform changes so quickly and can change almost overnight that when you have a Dead Sea come back to life, suddenly we can travel back in time to the era in which these Spanish explorers are actually sailing in inland California <laughs> with their galleons laden with gold. Yeah, and when and and again, I I think that galleon was more uh, pearls. There's stories of gold and stuff, but it it made sense they had pearls on board because there's pearls in the Gulf of California, and they had been uh, exploiting that resource. And and today, the Colorado River has all these dams that have held back water and changed the landscape because the Colorado River would overflow. Uh, near its mouth and go into Southern California. And that's why the Salton Sea is there. It used to be much, much bigger before they put in canals to divert water and, and these upstream dams to hold the uh, peaks of downstream flow for irrigation primarily. And again, it's it, to me, it's plausible that they were able to Enter the Salton Sea. The question is, in my mind, of whether you know what kind of treasure would you have on board. Uh, typically, you're going to have all your wealth on board. So they had some people that were fairly high up in the uh, Spanish aristocracy on board. So I would think they would be carrying, you know, their loot on board because. Back then, they didn't know if they were going to return or start a new colony or, or whatever once they got on one of these ships, because it all depends. Uh, and again, this story is fascinating because you have numerous reports of old timbers or ships arising out of the sand dunes over many years. You know, so I, I don't doubt there's some sort of a ship out there, you know. Is it a modern ship? 
you know, modern, you know, 1800s or 1900s type ship, or is it, you know, a very old Spanish galleon that ended up there? And as the floodwaters would recede, the sh- it would, the area would be too shallow for the ship to s- sail out. So that's how the story of the uh, lost ship of the desert came came about. But you know, it, it has a ring of truth to me. But it's hard to believe some of the descriptions that some of these old prospectors had about a, an intact ship sitting in the desert and nobody <laughs> can find it. That is the stuff of every pulp novel that I've ever read. You know, just eat it right up. Although it is interesting because if you think about the the plausible Spanish belief of the uh, sort of 1600s and 1700s, not knowing the topography of the area conclusively, you know, you write that they thought it was an island. They thought that California was actually just a very large island and that they'd found another channel into the Pacific. So, of course, they're going to sail into it if they find that particular waterway. I mean, why wouldn't they? So, the fact that they were being blindsided by something they could not otherwise have known, you know, it, it lends credence, it lends credibility, um, and and makes you. I mean, you you can't blame them, right? They they this is one of the they didn't do anything wrong, right? <laughs> so. Well, and, and and they were yeah they're on uh, voyages of exploration because they're always trying to claim new land for the king, and that's how you get wealth in a in a society run by the king at the top and all this aristocracy you you go out and find new lands make the king richer and you get richer that's basically their goal now you write in this particular instance um of the the lost spanish galleon that the there were over the course of the 1800s and early 1900s a couple of uh, I'm not going to say sightings, but a couple of potential sort of, you know, guys coming back on 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 a horse saying, hey, I was in the desert and I saw something that looked like it might have been a ship. But there were several, which is interesting. It wasn't just, uh, you know, kind of one isolated old drunk guy, right? I mean, so... How did you, as you were, as you were kind of taking a look at this particular case? I mean, how did how did you rate the credibility of these sightings? Well, the later ones not too high, but the sightings by uh, Spanish travelers through there, you know, they saw something. That's and and that gives it credibility that they they actually saw you know what looked to be a ship in the desert where the Salton Sea had receded. So I give that a lot more credibility. Prospectors, not as much, because they're always looking for grub steak to, to go out and keep hunting for treasure because, you know, it, it, our gold deposits, because they have the attitude, uh, you know, I don't have anything to lose by telling this story, and at least I'll get a good meal and I might actually find something. I, th- I think that's the problem with some of the lost treasure stories where you would have these old prospectors. Uh, the lost ship of the desert's really interesting. You know, from the standpoint, you have multiple sightings. They describe it differently in some of these sightings. But, you know, there very well could have been a Spanish ship that got 
stranded in the desert long time ago. Maybe one of these days, uh, some uh, LIDAR or some, uh, you know, spectral imaging, you know, done from bird's eye view, you know, might, might reveal, you know, that some archaeological structures that we were not previously aware of. You never know what might turn up. You never, ever know. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast killer podcasts and slow burn media production subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows a little subsection of cases i wanted to ask you about as far as you know these old prospectors making up a story in order to get a grub stake that sort of thing you have a couple of hoaxes in your book, you have some frauds, <laughs> which, you know, you call the spade a spade, and I don't blame you one bit. Uh, so the one that I wanted to ask you about in particular was in Death Valley, and that was a, a kind of an intriguing one because you actually have, very recently in living memory, in the mid-1980s, you have a state archaeologist who discovers a chest, uh, a literal treasure chest in, <laughs> in Death Valley, which is very exciting. Um, but there's an asterisk to the story, isn't there? There is. The National Park Service, it was in Death Valley, so they were all upset that they touched it. But again, he turned everything over to them, and they had some... Uh, indications that it was a fraud you know for one thing there wasn't very much money in the treasure chest because uh it had vintage coins and and some tintypes and other material in there but i think it was like 52 dollars and some change or something like that and it was like you know i would expect more money why well, go to all that trouble for 50 bucks <laughs> trouble yeah and the other thing was they found adhesives on some of the cups that were modern adhesives indicating whoever whoever uh, put the treasure chest in there probably bought them at an antique store of this right vintage and put them in the the chest and the guy that found it i mean i think he was honest and meant well, but it always looked to me like he was set up by his friends or something to as a joke, and the joke got out of hand and it made national news and everything. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the other way to look at it is you have people in the park service uh, saying, you know, there's an adhesive on there and there really wasn't, but I, I would tend to believe the folks in the National Park Service were uh, upright and honest about the chest. Yeah. I've worked with, I've worked with a few federal archeologists, you know, rangers, uh, you know, from over the years and they, they tend to be pretty straight up guys, you know, and 
There's also no motivation to, to, to come up with anything there. There's just none. It doesn't help anybody. So yeah. No. And, and, they, and they're usually out to tell the truth. They just want the facts and they're very scientific. And, and again, I worked with archaeologists at the core and engineers. So I know the type. Well, let me ask you very briefly, before we get to our sort of grand dame of the case, which I'm so excited to hear directly from you about because you were involved in it, um, I want to look really quickly at um, one which I'm sure will ring a lot of bells for our listeners, which is the Donner Party. And you have a, a couple of mentions of some of the uh, treasure, I guess you can call it, but I mean, they, when the Donner Party was crossing over, uh, you know, the mountains, uh, they, they did have to bring gold and silver with which to pay, you know, people for different services. And, and of course, we know how that uh, story ended. But in particular, you know, you, you talk about one member of the Donner Party, uh, Elizabeth, who just has a really kind of interesting wrinkle to her story and would you just help us to kind of see what what she's doing there because that that part doesn't often get told the donner party got stranded in winter at donner pass about half the party ended up dying they had to resort to cannibalism and and she was one of the survivor one of the people that were still there when the rescue parties came in and the early rescue parties had to come in on snowshoes they there's still lots of snow in the mountains and they tried to bring in some food and take some of the survivors out and she was one of the survivors and she had a cache of money that they were aware of and so they made some jokes about getting her money etc and and again these guys that came in they had been promised a percentage of the goods that the Donna party carried or, you know, they were getting paid by the day for the risk coming up. So it wasn't all in their good heart that they came up there. Some of them, you know, very much so, but some of them not so. And so she was going to leave with them and head back to the central Valley and get out of the mountains. But she was sick, you know, she'd been through lots of problems, so she hid her money before she left. And, you know, the, again, I talk about all these different groups having money, and some of them, some of the money was, we know, was taken from the camp, and then some of it probably is maybe buried, still buried there. But interesting enough, she died while heading to the Central Valley, and and the group she was with, they resorted to cannibalism, and she was one of the victims. So, I mean, it's really tragic. But the interesting thing was, you know, uh, many years after the Donner Party, there was a, a group of people up there kind of picnicking and knocking around, and they found coins on the ground, and it's well documented. It ended up in a lot of newspapers. And normally you would think the coins would be all U.S. coins. But it was a mix of, you know, a wide variety of coins because coinage was real sparse in the West. And so you would end up with Spanish coins or coins from Europe or South America in the mix. 
and that's what they had in this cache. You know, it's it's makes it you you know it was her money. You have this incredible line where it, it just it really struck me, <laughs> uh, Craig, that the ingenuity and the foresight that she had uh, preparing for this particular voyage. I mean, she knew she was at risk. This is Elizabeth Graves, we should have said, uh, not Elizabeth Donner, Elizabeth Graves. Um, and she knew that it, it, any number of things could possibly happen, but one of which would be robbery or you know what have you. And you have this direct quote where you say, uh, Elizabeth Graves' wagon carried her coins to California, hidden in auger holes, bored in cleats, nailed to her wagon bed to hold a table inside her wagon. And for anybody who does woodworking, much less, you know, without power tools, right? <laughs> um, you know, to to construct that kind of hiding spot and then fill it you know, with the exact right diameter and, you know, in a place that won't get like jostled loose, you know, I, I was amazed <laughs> to think that, you know, someone had done this and, and, and it w- seemed to have worked until many years later when these coins began, you know, appearing. But I just thought, wow, this, she really knew what she was doing to protect herself and her investment. Well, and back in those days, you know, there are a lot of hiding places in houses, you know, secret compartments and things like that. And people don't think about it today. You know, you you have a safe room or a safe in the wall or something. But back then, um, you know, you didn't put money in the banks. There was no FDIC in case the bank failed. (laughs) So if you had cash, you had to do something with it. And... Again, they were smart people. They were educated. Uh, they had businesses back in Illinois, uh, Missouri, and El- yeah, it was Missouri, Springfield, Missouri. And so they even had goods on their wagons to sell in California to help pay for the trip. I mean, they were entrepreneurs. But yeah, it's amazing to think about, you know, the steps that you need to take in order to hide your money back then. Well, there's some folks out there who I'm sure probably still think that, you know, your bed mattress is the safest place to put your, uh, <laughs> you know, your, your, your hard-earned uh, winnings at the, at the end of the day compared to some of the banks that are out there. But let's, before we, before we wrap up, we have got to talk about this extraordinary case, which you write about from Del Norte County, which you yourself were a part of the uh, sort of assessment, the recovery, the um, the analysis of, and I, I'm just going to say this, Craig, I, I almost didn't believe what I was reading, you know, when it came to the brother Jonathan, the shipwreck of the brother Jonathan, you know, that as I, as I was going through your account of it, I just thought, no, 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 this can't be the case. And then and then at the very end when you say, oh, and by the way, the author was involved, I was like, no, it is true. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was, please, please just tell us all about it. It was incredible. And congratulations on the work that you did there. I mean, wow. Well, I didn't do much work. I had done a lot of research. I got a book, you know, Encyclopedia of Civil War Shipwrecks that I had been writing at the time. 
And so I had done a lot of research on the brother Jonathan, and it it it's really tragic because the ship was overloaded with people, and the navigation line forced the captain to go ahead and head north, being overloaded, and basically it ended up sinking in a big storm. It hit a rock. It was built in 1851, and then it sank about 15 years later. It was kind of right in the right at the tail end of the Civil War. That it was 1865. Yeah, and it, it had money on board for uh, the military, but it was in cash. But it also was conveying gold and silver bars and coins up north, and again, a lot of the passengers, most of the passengers, I think died in the storm because they hit a, a ledge in the ocean. It tore open the ship. It was, it, I mean, it wasn't real far from shore, but it wasn't close enough. And the lifeboats that they had on the vessel just couldn't uh, survive in the stormy sea. And this was a little north of San Francisco, is that right? It had left out of San Francisco Bay, and it was just a couple miles uh, north of there. And as we all know, I mean, the area the, the area around the bay is incredibly treacherous anyway. And then without modern navigation, it's ten times as treacherous. So. Right. You, you, you had to know where the reefs were or the ledges. And again, the storm was so bad, they couldn't make any headway and they were trying to return back to the little port there and and they were driven into the rocks and and I kind of think it, it took a long time to find the wreck people looked for it for a number of years and a group finally found it and then they they were had to have a battle with the uh, state of California over the rights of what they recovered but there's still a lot of uh, documented treasure. The, they had a uh, safe that nobody ever recovered that we know of. So the people that found the treasure cut a deal with the state of California after many years of lawsuit and divided up the gold and silver that they had recovered. But I'm convinced there's still more out there, but it could be that when the ship, hit the rocks, it started uh, breaking up and part of this material might be in a uh, field along the path that the ship took. And you find this on treasure galleons, etc. in the Florida, is there will be a field of debris from the ship that leads finally to the, where the ship is actually sunk. The State Lands Commission claims all the old uh, shipwrecks off the coast of California, and they've discouraged people from hunting for treasure ships, etc. And they have a listing of sunken ships in their jurisdiction on one of their websites, and they're real aggressive on uh, shutting people down from doing things as far as shipwrecks and, and other things. And I, I dealt with them in the Corps of Engineers. So they're, they're a difficult group from the standpoint of treasure hunting or uh, doing anything on state lands. 
Yeah. Well, tell us about your involvement with this particular case, because you write that you were um, coordinating with federal attorneys in the San Francisco area uh, while you were at the Corps. Right. They have uh, admiralty attorneys. There were a couple in San Francisco. You know, the U.S. government had shipments on the ship, so they had an interest, and part of their question was whether or not any of the gold and silver recovered was government property. Uh, It was documented, or there's stories that there was cash for to pay uh, U.S. Army officers and and their enlisted men in Fort Van. I think it was Fort Vancouver in Washington. And also, there was supposedly some Indian money for, for the Indian agents in Washington. Um, you know, and I I had done some research, but I found an article written by someone who had done research in the natural National Archives, but the material that he had seen had disappeared from the National Archives, or they couldn't find it. But according to his research, it was in cash. It was in banknotes. And, and again, banknotes may not do well in saltwater unless, yeah, unless they're in a safe. Sometimes they'll survive, but it wasn't the gold and silver that was recovered was either private or uh, bank related. It was commercial. It wasn't federal government. So my part was saying, you know, this is the material I found. Uh, you know, the U.S. government doesn't need to stake a claim on uh, recovery. And so that was my part of the, sto- the story. It was just I had done all this research, and, and the attorneys were wondering, you know, what's going on? And plus, when you have material in the National Archives or or somewhere, it's often hard to find because it hasn't been cataloged. And sometimes they'll pull it out of, out of the research bins and it'll be misfiled under something else and because hardly anybody does that. But research is getting better because they're, with computers, they're starting to catalog things so you can actually research it. And sometimes you can research it online. And see these incredible letters written in the early 1800s, you know, that nobody's really talked about, you know, or you haven't run across elsewhere. The brother Jonathan is, you know, it's a true treasure ship that was lost. And there have been several California treasure ships lost in the the gold mining period. Uh, One of them was in Mexico, and one of them is the Central America off the East Coast, off Charleston. That was found a few years ago, but these were—I mean, these were the type of ships when the ship sank, stock and banknotes dropped in New York because they were waiting on that gold to come and uh, fulfill consignments, etc. It, it, was, it was a different time period, but yeah, the brother Jonathan is just really tragic. You know, it's interesting that the stakes in this one are are not small. I mean, you have a lot of accounts in your book of um, 
you know, old miners who come home with literally a pickle jar full of flakes and they say, you know, I hit it, I hit it big. And you're kind of like, all right, grandpa, you know, like you, you hit it medium is what you hit it. But, you know, in this particular case, you're describing the first recovered amount of gold uh, that, that came up from the brother Jonathan was valued around half a million dollars in today's money. That was just the first batch of gold that came up. And the rest of a, a one settlement, you found you describe one settlement alone uh, of about a thousand gold coins sold about uh, 25 years ago. And that went for over $5 million. I mean, this we're talking an enormous haul here, and that's just a fraction of it. Right. And a lot of it uh, were privately minted ingots that they were the only copy in the world. I mean, people knew that you had, an, had a mint and it minted these gold or silver ingots, but there weren't very many. They'll be, you know, they're stamped with the uh, assayer's mark and everything else. So they're, they're unique. And some of these coins, again, are hard to find because they didn't produce very many. And when we went off the gold standard, a lot of the gold coins were melted down uh, from all the periods. So to have gold coins is, is a rarity. I mean, they're, they're expensive to buy from this time period. And, and again, I think there's still some more stuff out there, but because of the litigation between the salvage group and the state lands commission, they had to shut down and not really spend a lot of time looking for the rest of the treasure on the ship. We can dream. We can dream of the next time that somebody can get out there maybe with a submersible or, uh, you know, what have you. And our, uh, our butts will be on the edges of their seats until then, won't they? They will. I think... You know, there's treasure to be had in California, and it's the gold, golden state. It's got a long legacy of gold and silver and interesting happenings. I tried to cover that in my book and give flavor to the great state of California. Well, I have to warn our listeners uh, who I absolutely encourage to go and pick up a copy of of your book, but have to warn them with one very specific admonition. This book will keep you up at night because you will <laughs> begin making notes on, you know, the claim that maybe somebody hasn't checked out in a while, but you know, you you just might be that guy to find, you know, where X marked the spot in, uh, you know, Alameda County or wherever it might be. It, it is really something to kind of go through and realize just how much there is that has been forgotten, that has been misplaced, that was discovered but never brought up out of the ground, you know, to begin with, and is still there. I, I mean, it's kind of a head trip a little bit to consider how much wealth is still under the soil or in the, the creek beds and and so forth. So um, just, you know, reader, reader, be warned, you're going to get some, you know, some, some daydreams out of this you know, <laughs> that, that will, uh, you know, send you down some curious mental, mental roots. Well, well, and just recently, a few years ago, a family ran discovered a cache of 
gold coins on their property. And at the time I wrote the book, I couldn't find anything real hard about it. You know, they'd been published just kind of a few lines here, a few lines there. There's a little more about it, but it was substantial. It was a substantial amount of gold and I think maybe silver. I'm trying to remember, but uh, they stumbled onto it on their property. And so, you know, it, it tells you there's still treasure out there. And, you know, and, and again, the gold miners that were rich or the merchants, they had to hide their money somewhere because they didn't trust the banks. Well, you have told us how to find this lost treasure, but tell us how our listeners can find you, uh, Craig, and if they want to chase up your books, uh, not just California, but your other books as well, uh, what's the best place for them to, to come across your work? Amazon has a lot of my books. I think I've got 15 books that I've written or co-wrote, and Amazon uh, has most of them. Um, and I'm working on lost Missouri treasure now. I, I, after, before this book was completed, I did lost Oklahoma treasure and lost Texas treasure. And again, those are areas that I've spent a lot of time in and I've used my metal detector, etc. And lost Missouri treasure, my family's from Southeast Missouri and I was born in St. Louis. Yeah. So it's, it's another area near and dear to my treasure hunting heart. Thank you for taking us on this incredible journey and happy hunting. <laughs> I don't know Thank what else you. to say, but happy hunting when you're out there. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. It's, it's always a lot of fun uh, looking for lost treasure because you always learn something or see something you wouldn't have seen. Even if you don't find gold and silver, there's, there's treasure out and, and looking for things. Well, I couldn't find a better place to end it on. When you find something, you come back and tell us about it, okay? Okay, if it's substantial. If it's a penny or two, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> or the other way around. If it's substantial, you won't tell us, right? Because you'll be laughing all the way to the bank. I hope so. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Thank you so much, Craig. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Craig Gaines, author of Lost California Treasure a brand new title published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit arcadiapublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. Join us next week as we continue our conversation with Craig and dive deeper into the lost riches of the California hills. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.